0: Just got to make sure that the sound is on awesome for the computer. So then, for my sermon, so here see so here's the sermon. So you know, click on the kind of black slide when this started, just go ahead and click on the video when I tell you to. This is right after you So I'll be doing. Don't do that now. Well, I told you yesterday, yesterday, you ever notice how your week gets messed up when you have surgery and everything's thrown off? I don't know what day it is, I'm pretty sure it's Sunday. Yeah, maybe. Thanks, Dave, I always count on you. If you didn't hear it, messed up before is what he said. You might be right. Might be right. All right. So we're going to talk about one specific word today. Um, as an introduction to that, I want to show you just a short one-minute video. Dave, would you play that? Turn the lights back on. Nobody gets to sleep today. Shalom. Yeah, you don't know what to do with that because it's a Hebrew word. Shalom. Uh, Let me try again. Some of you might know what to do if I say this. Peace be with you. And also with you. Oh, look at the liturgical history in so many. Some of the Lutheran and Catholic backgrounds that you have. Peace be with you, and also with you. And if that isn't familiar enough, then try this. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 26. You didn't know it, but you're probably familiar with this passage in the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That is the ironic blessing, Aaron. The priest. So there's Moses and Aaron. And that is the blessing of Aaron, and that blessing is used oftentimes to close Christian worship services. Some churches they they say that at the end of every service, and some of you may have come from a church like that. And I think that that is not a bad way to close. That word, peace. What you're asking for, what Aaron was asking for as he said that blessing, was that we would receive the peace of God. And that word peace, if you were to read that verse in Hebrew, is shalom. What is the goal of us talking about peace last week and this week? There is a goal, and it is on purpose. As you may know, I think you know, um, Dr. Dwyer is going to be talking to us. He's going to be sharing with us messages from the Bible on the nights of camp. So there's going to be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday morning. Six messages. These are all going to be in the evening and then Sunday morning. All six messages are going to be around the topic of engaging our cultural divisions biblically. Engaging our cultural divisions biblically. I am crazy excited to hear how Dr. Dwyer is going to bring out the word of the Lord about that. But I feel like last week and this week have been important to prepare my heart and your heart to hear what God is going to have for us at family camp. And I think a huge part of that preparation is understanding what we are called to do as Christians. We're called to be peacemakers. The word peace and the word shalom are so important to understanding how to engage our cultural divisions. biblically. So, that's the reason why I felt like God was saying, preach on peace last week and this week. And now as we open up God's word, I'm going to ask once again, as we always do before we read Scripture that God would inspire us and help us to understand. So God, we do ask you, Holy Spirit, we ask you to be here in a powerful and a specific way. We ask that you would help us to read your inspired word with inspired understanding. To not just read it, but to read it and have it become part of us. And that happens only when you, Holy Spirit, intervene and help us. We'll ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. The night before Jesus was crucified, He met with His disciples. He ate with them. He instituted what we call communion with them. He washed their feet. And He taught them many things that they would need to know to survive in the world without them. John 14, 25-27 says, This is Jesus speaking in the upper room to his disciples. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace. I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled, and do not be afraid. One of the last things that Jesus told his disciples, before he was crucified, and before he was no longer with them, in a bodily way, one of the last things he said to them, was peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Jesus left us his peace. He gave us his peace. And this peace gives us access to the power to live without a troubled heart. And to live without fear. I mean, that's exactly what that says. Do you see that? That is what Jesus promised us so that we could be in this difficult world. You know, the prophet Isaiah received a prophetic vision from God about Jesus, the Messiah. And he gave Jesus, the Messiah, he gave him a messianic name. So this is 700 years before Jesus the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 9:6, Here's a familiar Christmas verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now you've heard that a hundred times at Christmas, haven't you? But consider Jesus' prophetic name, who he is, Prince of Peace. And God himself, in other parts of the Old Testament, is known as the God of Peace. Look at Judges 6.24. Judges is not the book you would expect to find a a word about God being the God of Peace. And yet, Judges 6.24. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. Do you see how that is, The Lord is Peace? To this day, it stands in Oprah of the Epheserites. Now, what's interesting about the Lord is peace, do you see that? That's a title. That's a name. In Hebrew, if you looked at that in Hebrew, it says, the part that says the Lord is peace, it says, Yahweh Shalom. That's what it says in Hebrew. Yahweh Shalom. Now, Yahweh, I've, I've told you this before, but as a reminder, Yahweh is the personal name of God himself. Like, it's the personal name, right? So, this is the name, when, when Moses was looking at the burning bush, and God said from the bush to Moses, go to my people, you will be their deliverer. And Moses said, how am I going to do that? I, I don't even know your name. Who am I supposed to say sent me? And that's when, from the bush, God said, My name is Yahweh. Now in English that translates, doesn't it, into I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And even Carolyn, I I made you, I didn't make you. But I asked you to maybe change that one worship song and violate copyright. Because the song, The Great I Am, right? You know that song? I said, take the the... Would you consider taking the the out? Because it's not the great I am. It's just I am. God's name is I am. Yahweh shalom. I am. Peace. Shalom is a key term. In the Old Testament. And it's not wrong to translate it as peace. However, if you've ever heard this word before, and of all the Hebrew words that have ever been, like, gotten into English, shalom is probably one of the top five. Maybe maybe number one. If, If you don't know any other Hebrew word, one word that you've probably heard of before is shalom. Now, what does it actually mean, though? Because... Yes, it means peace. But shalom is one of those words where just one English word does not capture the meaning. Now, as a way of comparison, there's a... The Eskimos, they have a language. And and I think it's Inuit. And the Eskimo language, they have a word that... Like, we have one word. We call it snow. Uh... Inuit have, like, 25 words that, like, different kinds of snow. Okay? So, shalom is kind of like that. It's it's one word, but it has a huge, giant, broad set of meanings. And just one of those meanings is peace. So, I want to try to define this word, and, like, it's half a page for me to define this word. That's what I'm going to do right now. Half a page trying to define shalom in English. So peace, let's just start with peace, but it's more than that. It also means lack of conflict, so to be at peace. So it means you're not at war, okay? But then it also means, and this is according to Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, Shalom means completeness, soundness, welfare, peace. And it's translated as success in some places. And and it's used as part of an inspired blessing in 1 Chronicles 12, 18. Shalom is applicable to an external peace between two entities, such as individuals or nations, and to an internal sense of peace within the individual. So it's like both. It's like not just... Peace as in the absence of war. It's also this idea of an inner peace, but it's more than that. It's like it's like wholeness. It's like the idea of success. It's it's prosperity. It's completeness. It's wholeness. It's it's well-being, it's it's welfare, it's a sense of of having arrived. It's 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 English words don't even... Do you see how I'm struggling? Like, and I'm looking at definitions here. Not only that, but in the Old Testament and really throughout the world, both in the past and even today, the idea of peace or shalom, it was used as a greeting. So, like today, when I started the sermon, shalom, it's a greeting. Like, it's, it's all of that. And, and, and another definition, in the home and treasury of key Bible words, we find this explanation. When shalom is best translated as peace, this peace is more than mere absence of war or strife. It describes a peace that is positive, a time, place, and condition that features love, righteousness, calmness, political and moral uprightness. And much more. It is a word reserved for those who walk with God in a positive relationship. I've only just scratched the surface of what shalom means. It's more than peace. It's even more than inner peace. It's the idea of completeness. How do we sum up a term that has such broad usage and meaning in the Old Testament. I'm going to try to sum it up. I'm going to try to do this in two parts. And just so you know, uh, I've been struggling with this message all week because it seems like such, such a grand concept, okay? So I, I just was talking to Mike this morning. He stops in my office. And I'm like, I'm struggling. Like, that was this morning. I've been struggling with this, okay? So it's like, it's like this huge... Word that goes beyond English of peace and well being and wholeness, right? But then I'm transposing that idea, that concept, over a time of division that I've never experienced before in my 45 years. Right? That's where we're at in our country right now. How do we talk about shalom at the same time that we're living in the world we're living in? <laughs> That's the struggle that I've had as a pastor trying to bring this to you. So this is my attempt. It's probably pathetic. Okay? It's probably incomplete. But I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do it in two parts. So here's part one. Here we go. And this is the, the foundational, the most important part of Shalom. So if you, as you think about Shalom, I want you to think about this thing first as foundational. Okay? Okay? The foundation of shalom in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is a shalom that is between us and God. Between us and God. If a person does not possess shalom with God, they are going to be unable to experience the fullness of shalom in any other aspect. Does that make sense? It starts, the foundation of it, the most important thing about Shalom, is it starts between God and us. Shalom is both the act of peace and reconciliation with God, as well as the result in our life of that peace and reconciliation in action. That was important and complicated. I want to say it again. Because that whole concept is important to have in your mind. Shalom is both the act of peace and reconciliation we have with God, as well as the result of having that peace and reconciliation with God. It's both. It's both the act and the result. That's what makes it hard to comprehend. Now, what does this look like? I, I'm going to try to explain it. Paul describes, the Apostle Paul describes in detail. Now, he never uses the word peace, but he's describing the idea of shalom. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, I'm just going to read the last section of this, but I would encourage you to read the whole section. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21 says, So from now on, We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That one paragraph could be like ten sermons, just to let you know. So I'm not going to be able to unpack that paragraph. But do you notice how reconciliation with God is the key? It's the primary, it's the foundation, it's the start. Right? Now, how do you do this? Well, lucky for us... God has been seeking shalom with us from the beginning. That's good news, everybody. God has been seeking shalom with us from the beginning. <laughs> Isn't that interesting to think? God didn't have to do that. But He's done it. He's been seeking it all through the, all through the history of mankind. He's been seeking shalom with us. And He has made a way for us To be at peace with Him through Jesus Christ. To receive shalom with God, we must choose to believe in Jesus. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, that word saved, shalom and salvation, the Old Testament Hebrew, go together. They are connected the idea of shalom and the idea of salvation are connected. There's something about having peace with God that is a way of talking about salvation. And of course, I just read it in 2 Corinthians 5. Peace with God is salvation. Did you see that? So one aspect of shalom is salvation. But then Romans 5, 1 and 2, I also want to read this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith we have received We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do you see that? Peace with God is a way of talking about salvation. Reconciliation with God. Shalom is salvation. When we receive shalom with God okay then we are able to experience the fullness of shalom. You see, it's, it's both the salvation and the, and what happens after we're saved is shalom. And that's so, that's such a strange thing because shalom is, remember, a definition I gave you earlier, success, prosperity, completeness, wholeness, well-being, and welfare. Now, when I say success, don't think monetary success. I'm not a health and wealth prosperity preacher. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying success like ultimately the success that is found only in having shalom with God. When you have shalom with God, your life becomes characterized by the shalom of God. That's what happens. It's both the how and the what. See, the big idea is that fullness of life, completeness, Meaning, purpose of life is unlocked when we receive shalom that is offered by God. Did you hear that? The fullness of life, the meaning, the purpose, all of those things, they are unlocked when we receive, when we accept the shalom of God. We receive shalom when we accept shalom. (laughs) It's weird. And of course, John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. That idea of full life, do you see how that's shalom? The fullness of life that Jesus is offering is peace, completeness. It's the whole thing about what we're shooting for. So that's the first thing. And I want to remind you again, first and most importantly, the foundation of shalom in both the Old and New Testament is a shalom that is between God and us. But of course, the relationship, the restored relationship we have between God and us, leads immediately into the second thing about shalom. And that is this. The result of shalom with God that we receive, the fullness of shalom in our life, turns into shalom we have for others. I mean, greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we receive peace from God, we become people who extend peace. Of course, peace isn't the right word. We extend shalom. When we receive the shalom that God offers, and then we live in the shalom that we've received, we now become people of shalom with everyone around us. This is what it means to be a Christian. And so now, let's look at it. Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. You guys, think about that command. Just just the, listen, there's a command. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Do you know what that means? It means you can choose to not let it rule. You can make that choice. And since as members of one body you were called to peace, what were we called for as members of the body of Christ? Peace! Shalom! Shalom! is who we are. And last week, I told you about Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, I love that verse because it's not always possible to live at peace, is it? Because you can't control what other people do, but you can control what you do. And what you do is controlled by the shalom that is inside you. Do you see that? That's what that means. So I'm not saying peace is guaranteed. Because we can't control the people around us. We shouldn't try to control the people around us. But we can control ourselves and the way that we respond and the way we initiate. We have the ability to live with with the peace of Christ ruling our hearts. And I would also add to that Romans 14, 19. Let us therefore make every effort... To do what leads to peace? Have you made every effort to do what leads to peace? Do you want me to start naming the issues that we like to comment on on Facebook? Have you made every effort to do what leads to peace before you make that post? You know, it begins to become obvious that our experience of shalom with God can and should lead toward our pursuit of shalom with others. (laughs) It's like a super obvious thing. We have been given peace to, and we can experience peace and fullness and wholeness, and then that means that's the way we interact with the people around us. I mean, it's not a hard concept Okay, that's my first and second thing about Shalom. And now we're going to talk about application. And then we're going to be done. But the application part is going to be a little bit dicey. Are you ready for a little bit dicey? Are you ready to, to stick with me even though you're going to be like, what's he saying now? I hope you will. Okay? Hopefully... In the first two sections I have just gone through with you, I have given you ample biblical support that God is seeking shalom with us. We can receive the fullness of shalom in our lives when we accept God's shalom with us. And the practical outcome of that transaction is that we seek shalom with others. That's the idea. Everybody got that? Not tricky. Or is it? So how do we apply the idea of shalom in our current situation? And of course, this is the tricky part. It's easy for a pastor to get up here and talk about all this Bible stuff. But what happens when you actually have to put it in your life? This is a moment of significant division, as if I have to tell you that, right? Political division driven by increasingly divergent foundational ideological perspectives. I wrote that this morning. It's just for me. I didn't take that or something. I think that's what we're living in. Can I say it again? We are living in a moment of political division driven by increasingly divergent foundational ideological perspectives. Everybody got that? One of those perspectives, I believe there's four main areas. The first one is freedom. Personal freedom, the freedom we have... Versus communal freedom. In other words, where does my freedom stop, right, when my freedom begins to impact other people around me? Did everybody get that? Where does my freedom stop before it starts impacting or affecting other human beings around me? Or even inside me? It's about freedom. Where does yours stop and other people's begin? That is a serious cultural, political division happening right now. Two, I believe that wealth is a significant cultural divisive issue right now in our culture. The haves versus the have-nots. And we have to talk about this. We have to talk about the inequality that is in our culture regarding wealth. It's an incredible dividing point. Number three, cultural acceptance. We are having a serious division right now in our country about what actions or lifestyle are acceptable in our culture. Where and who gets to decide that line, right? What is okay and what is not okay in our culture? And then number three, number four, I would say, is racism and hatred that is everywhere. Now I, I need to tell you, I, this sermon that I, the, the ten minutes I've got left, there's no way I can talk about any of those in depth. Right? I'm not even going to try. Remember, we're talking about Shalom. What I want to do is just point out those are the divisions. How do we be people of Shalom in the middle of this? Okay? That's what I'm trying to do. So, the first thing we got to do if we're going to apply Shalom to these cultural divisions. Number one. Ready? Here we go. We must, as people of God, have a mindset of Shalom from the beginning. From the very first before we talk to anybody, before we have any discussion, before we put anything on the internet, our mindset must be one of shalom. Remember, Romans twelve eighteen. if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at, what happened to my, my it's supposed to be on the screen. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That is the starting place of Christians interacting with the divisions in our culture. That's what I'm suggesting. That's the starting place. Shalom is the beginning of how we interact with these cultural divisions. We have shalom with God through Jesus. We must be people of shalom. As we think about how to engage our cultural divisions biblically, that's what Dr. Gwire is going to talk to us about. It starts with peace, with wholeness, and that Starts with God and us, and then goes from us to others. That's the starting point. Okay. Second, a mindset of godly shalom will lead us to a different way of conflict. I believe that we have failed in a ridiculously huge way in the way that we have had and experienced conflict for years, for decades, I think the COVID thing was a perfect example of how to do conflict poorly. We still haven't talked about what COVID did to divide our church. We've never talked about it publicly. Because we don't want to. We have to have a mindset of godly shalom that will lead us to a different way of conflict. I believe that the way that we handled our conflict in this church and in our entire nation was about as far from Christ-likeness as I could imagine. Well, I could imagine outright war, and now there's people even talking about that, isn't there? Civil war is being talked about right now because the division is so significant. So let's let's talk about something and this is the part that I'm worried about but I felt like I needed to share. It. Okay? Last week if you were here, I read a blog from Ken Han. Do you remember that? It was a blog about there was a there was a group in I think Seattle that was they were they were protesting um, for abortion. So they were pro-choice protesters. And the protest got to a point where they actually took a Bible and were playing soccer with it. An actual Bible, a paper Bible, they were kicking it around playing soccer. Okay? I read that to you, and I read Ken Ham's blog, and Ken Ham's blog was pro-life. Now I'm going to read something else. I'm going to read something that I got in my email this week from our senator, Tina Smith. I received an email from Tina Smith, not a personal one. It was one of those things they send to everybody. And I somehow got on Tina Smith's email list a long time ago. I think it's because I asked her to vote for something. So then I got on her list. She didn't vote the way I was looking. Not smart. I want to read this to you. Now, Tina Smith, Minnesota Senator, our Senator in Washington, D.C., sent this out this week. The title of the email, the subject of the email was, The Fight for Reproductive Rights. It's been nearly one month since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and I've had some time to reflect on what this decision means for our country. When I was just 15 years old, Roe v. Wade established that women have a constitutional right to autonomy over our bodies. During my time at Planned Parenthood, I saw firsthand how controlling your own health care allows you to make the best decisions about the course of your life, your education, your work, and your family. Now, I have watched the extremist Supreme Court take away these rights, stripping away 50 years of precedent, freedom, and personal choice. At its core, this decision is about control. Right wing government officials believe they should decide what women can and cannot do with their bodies. Women whose lives and stories they will never know. Since Roe was overturned, at least nine states have banned abortion. Republican senators have blocked life saving legislation that would protect women who travel for abortion. And the Indiana Attorney General wants to criminally charge the doctor who performed an abortion. On 10-year-old victim of sexual assault. Texas is suing the Biden administration for requiring that women be provided with life-saving health care, including abortion, in cases of medical emergency. In other words, they are suing for the power to kill women. The public is overwhelmingly outraged by these actions. Nearly two-thirds of Americans believe that abortion should be available to women. And more Americans describe themselves as pro-choice today than at any other point in the last 25 years. We have to keep fighting. In an op-ed for the New York Times that I wrote with Senator Elizabeth Warren, we talk about what elected officials and everyday Americans can do to help others access reproductive care. You can read our piece here. In Congress, I support putting the protections of Roe v. Wade into law upholding the right of women to travel across state lines to receive an abortion, and I have introduced legislation to protect access to medication abortion in places where it is still legal. I am encouraged by the Biden administration's steps to defend abortion access. But let me be clear, the only way to restore reproductive rights across the nation is through Congress. I will continue to push tirelessly to defend women's right to make decisions about their own lives and bodies, And I will not stop organizing and fighting until women's freedoms can be exercised equally in all parts of this country. Your senator, Tina Smith. Now, I'm not going to go into a rant against what she wrote. Because my point is something different. I strongly strongly disagree with Tina Smith and I strongly agree with Ken Ham, okay? I am pro-life, all the way. I am ardently pro-life, and I am against the pro-choice movements, just to be clear. But I want to pause and notice something in both of these positions. Neither position, what I read from Ken Ham last week and what I read from Tina Smith today, The pro-life position and the pro-choice position, neither position recognizes nor even mentions the other side's position. Pro-life, whenever you hear anything about pro-life, and most of us in here, that's all we hear. We only hear the pro-life position. Pro-life almost never, I was—I was almost said never, because I'm not sure I've ever heard the pro-life position mention that abortion is an exceedingly complex issue in which a woman's body is not her own. Pro-life position doesn't say that. This is a freedom that a woman loses when she becomes pregnant. And the pro-life position will never save it. Now the pro-choice position, never or almost never, mentions that abortion is an exceedingly complex issue in which the child is a real human being and has the freedom, the right, to live. This is a freedom that the child loses if the child is aborted. Now I need you to understand what I'm trying to say here. There are two freedoms that are competing when we talk about abortion. The freedom of the woman to have control over her own body and the freedom of the child to simply live. But my point is this. They're both freedoms. Freedoms. They are competing freedoms. The problem I have here is that neither side is willing to admit or even say that the other side has a real freedom at the top. Because we have become so polarized that we can't even acknowledge what the other side is even saying. Did you notice the Tina Smith? I, it's amazing to me that she would say that the lives of women are on the line. (laughs) What about the life of the child? Of course you can't say that, but I want you to see on the pro-life side, we will say the lives of children are on the line. But we can't seem to come to say, and the rights and sometimes the lives of women are on. If you are polarized to the point you can't even hear the other side, you are not seeking shalom. And I'm not saying I agree with the pro-choice side, but we've got to start having a conversation about these divisive issues, or we will polarize to the point of conflict. And I'm talking open conflict. And maybe we're already there in some ways. You guys, it is the church who will stop this. It is the church who will stop the coming war. It's not going to be the government. Do you understand that? We are the people of Shalom in this country. We are the people who have received Shalom from God. If we are not people of Shalom, Shalom will not be what our country is. Who are we supposed to? You guys, we are followers of the guy whose title is Prince of Peace. That is who we are followers of. We are supposed to approach these issues from a position of shalom, not a position of anger and disgust. Not a position that just automatically sees the other side as the enemy. But from a position that starts from shalom. My stated goal is to find peace. That's the church's position. At least it's what it's supposed to be. Again, I have to emphasize, why did I struggle with this so much? Because the church is so far, not just with abortion, but all of these cultural issues, we have so polarized as to not even hear anything that anybody on the other side is saying. We have become so polarized. That is not the way of Jesus Christ. Even when we stand for the truth of Christ, remember we speak the truth in love. We've been speaking the truth but we have not been speaking in love. And that's been the case for a while. It shouldn't be hard for us to, to find some kind of common ground with what the other side believes. And I, I'm going on a limb saying this, but I'm going to say it anyways. The pro-choice position that a woman has lost freedom over her own body, what do you think the anti-vaccine position was? Oh, I don't want... I want freedom to be able to choose whether I get the vaccine or not. That's freedom I have over what happens inside my own body. It's the same position. Now, I'm going to be the first to say, in some ways it's completely different because that's a real child, a real human being, not a vaccine, right? But don't you understand, the argument is the same. Can you not see the hypocrisy when we are not people of peace regarding these culturally divisive issues? Can you not see it? We must begin to open our eyes to actually engage with people who disagree with us and actually engage from a mindset of peace, not from a starting point of division. We must, or our country, will be lost. And I'm going to suggest that loss will be on us because we're the ones who have shalom. So if we fail to be shalom, That's on us! I need to emphasize again how pro life I am (laughs) so that you don't get confused about what I'm saying. Look at Proverbs 24 11 through 12. Rescue those being led away to death, hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? I will fight for pro-life, but I'm going to fight the way of Christ. Did you hear that? I will fight against homosexual marriage, but I will fight in the way of Christ. I will fight against the transgender agenda, but I will fight the way of Christ, and the way of Christ is shalom, not division. We must stand for truth in love. We must be the shalom that our country needs right now. Romans 12 18. God hasn't just told us what to do. He's told us how to do it, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you. Live in peace. <laughs> My time is up. I, I want to leave you with one small little anecdote. When I do premarital counseling, and I, I'm doing premarital counseling right now, and uh, Pastor Mike is doing premarital counseling. Uh, Brighton and Deanna, you guys are in Pastor Mike's premarital counseling. There's, there's one exercise that is super important. There are, there are two foundations to, to having um, success in conflict in marriage. Okay? Obviously, you've got to be founded on Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? It means you must communicate effectively. And you must know how to do conflict resolution. Now, this is what's amazing to me. There's a, there's a chart. You guys worked through it just a couple weeks ago. It's the 10 steps to conflict resolution. I go through this with everybody in Premier Council. The Ten Steps to conflict Resolution. You know what amazes me? In all of the conflict that our society and that the church has had, including my own way of doing this, I don't think I've done any of the Ten Steps. Okay? So listen to these steps. Listen to these steps. Okay? Number one, set a time and a place for discussion. I have rattled in my brain so many times through COVID, and now even after COVID, could we set a time in our church where people can come and we can just talk about some of these issues? Like a forum, a debate. And I can't seem to get it figured out because we're so polarized. I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for even suggesting that the other side might have something to say. Okay? So, number one, set a time and a place for discussion. Number two, this is arguably the most important one. Okay? Okay? Number two, define the problem, be specific. Most of the conflict that people in marriage... You had to go through this, too. Yeah. Most of the conflict that happens in marriage is because you haven't defined the problem together. Right? So you got to define the problem. you got to be very specific so that you're working together. In marriage, conflict is not me versus her. It's us working together. Conflict is about win-win. When's the last time you heard, when we're talking about abortion or homosexuality or the, the national budget, when's the last time you heard, we're trying to get to a win-win solution? <laughs> the only win is if my side wins. That's been, what happened to compromise? There was a guy in history, who used to be called the great compromiser. He would be voted out of office if he ran today. You remember that guy? Can't remember. Number three. Number three. And this one's fantastic. Okay? Number three. List the ways you each contribute to the problem. I love that one. Because you know what's not number four? Number four is not list the ways your spouse your spouse has contributed to the problem. That one doesn't exist. It's not on the list. The only one that's on the list is list the ways you contribute to the problem. Imagine if a pro-choice person said, I want to tell you the way I've contributed to the problem of division in this country about abortion. Imagine if a pro-life person said, I want to list the ways that I have contributed to the problem of division in the country about abortion. Imagine if people actually stopped and said, here's where I'm wrong. When's the last time you heard anybody about any of these divisive issues say, I want to let you know where I'm wrong. I want to let you know where my political candidate is wrong about this. Do you know how that diffuses conflict? Do you know how that actually begins to start towards resolution? Towards reconciliation? Towards wholeness? Towards completeness? Towards success? What's the word i look for? Shalom, that's the one. Shalom can't happen if you're never willing to admit where you've contributed to the problem. Do you understand that? You can't get to conflict resolution. And it's like we keep listening to news sources that just keep spinning this and driving up our emotion and it's, it's all us versus them. It's, all, it's an all or nothing. There's no compromise. You're not going to compromise with the devil. You say they're the devil? What are you talking about? People in our county can't even put up a sign for a Democratic candidate because they're afraid the sign will be shot with a shotgun. People who may have voted for Biden last time don't want to let anybody know because they'll get harassed. What is wrong with this picture, people of Shalom? Anybody? Ten steps of conflict resolution. Number four, list past attempts to resolve the issue that were not successful. (laughs) Wouldn't that be fun? What are the past attempts about the abortion issue that we have attempted that are not successful? I know one, it's called Roe v. Wade. I know another one, it's the court case in the 90s that tried to update Roe v. Wade to make it a compromise. I know another one, it's the decision we just had that repealed Roe v. Wade because the court, the statement was, the court overreached and did legislation. What's the next one going to be? When do we, as people of peace, be part of this? Number five, brainstorm at least ten possible solutions to the problem. Could you imagine a pro-life person and a pro-choice person sitting down and brainstorming together a way forward? Could you imagine if Facebook became used for that? Facebook isn't evil. It's what we do with it that's evil. Number six, discuss and evaluate each of these possible solutions. Be as objective as possible. Talk about how useful and appropriate each suggestion feels for resolving your issue. Could you imagine a pro-life person or pro-choice person brainstorming together and then going through the list and saying, objectively, I don't think that one's going to work because. Number seven, agree on one solution to try. Number eight... Agree how you will each work toward that solution. Could you imagine if people pro-life and pro-choice agreed on one solution and then they both said here's what I'm going to do to work toward that solution and the other person said here's what I'm going to do to work toward that solution. Imagine this conflict in our country, this division. It's not incurable. We've got God on our side. We've got the Prince of Peace on our side. We've got Truth Himself on our side. And God loves the folks on the other side. And God loves the folks on this side. Let's start talking to them that way. Let, maybe they'll start talking to us that way. Is it even us and them? When did it become us and them? Even my language in this sermon seems strange. Do you see? Number nine, set up another meeting to discuss your progress. And then number ten, this one's going to be really tough. Reward each other for progress. Ha! Could you imagine? Okay. That's my practical anecdote. You guys, I have been wrestling with this idea of shalom this week. As you know, I have been wrestling with the, the cultural divisions that we have been experiencing for the last three years at the We've got to engage in Shalom. Lord God, please give us the courage and the strength and the wisdom to know how to be people of Shalom. Don't forget to pick up the Bibles and the hymnals and we'll put them in the container and then we're going to stack the chairs in groups. Oh, definitely.